We'll stand together for the reading of God's Word from John. And we are finishing out the 15th chapter this morning. We'll be taking it up John 15 and verse 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers service to God. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Amen. Thus far the word of God, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord God, God of the living word, of the enduring word, you who are from everlasting to everlasting, the self-existent one, all-powerful, all-glorious, we do marvel that you have stooped, yea, condescended even to make yourself known under the, to the sons of Adam, that you have even gone beyond that you have sent your servant into the world to save sinners, that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, to come and to redeem unto you a people. Father, we rejoice that we dwell in a time when the fullness of your revelation has been declared. We have seen it come to pass. Those things which uh, the people in the days of Isaiah longed to understand even and longed to see the fulfillment of, Lord, we have seen them and recorded, have seen them recorded in the Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who even now speaks to us from the pages of Scripture, Lord, bless the preaching of the word that you have appointed, that we would hear Christ. Indeed, that sinners would be converted, that the saints would be encouraged and built up. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You remember uh, a couple weeks ago I spoke of the witness of Pastor Samuel Lin in China about 20 years ago. He was a man so in love with Jesus that he wanted others to know the Savior that he knew. He wanted others to know the the blessings of the salvation uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he preached, even though it was forbidden for him to do, he preached the Word of God, and it was blessed with the power of the Holy Spirit. He wanted others to know that same God of salvation, no matter what costs that came to him. You remember how I quoted him, as best I can remember, that with more persecution, more suffering comes more growth. That's very much what we're considering this morning. In this text, we have the Greek word for witness. And it's it's the word we have in the English language of martyr. And in the Greek, it meant witness. So you see how the consequences of being a witness led to our understanding of the word martyr today. To suffer. Someone in English, the word martyr means someone who dies for the sake of what he believes. And to bear witness for Jesus has resulted in multitudes being martyred over the past 2,000 years. Witnessing and martyrdom often go hand in hand. Witnessing and martyrdom often go hand in hand. If we would be a witness for Jesus Christ, we should understand that it could result in persecution 
as we heard a couple weeks ago earlier in this 15th chapter. And that persecution for Jesus' sake could rise to the level of cost in our lives. Remember, they hate our Redeemer and they put Him to death. We should think nothing of it, as Jesus says, but that we should suffer as He has suffered. But it's only as those who love Jesus are witnesses that the Gospel is spread and the church grows. If we stay holed up in our homes and are silent, as there are those in our day that would want us to do that, keep your religion in your heart, keep it in your home, keep it in the church building. But Jesus has said, as we are going to proclaim, as we are going to make disciples, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. We're called to be out in the world proclaiming Christ. Indeed, Jesus makes it clear that that could result in persecution. That persecution, for Jesus' sake, could rise to the level of costing us our lives. But it is only those who love Jesus that are witnesses for the Him that spread the gospel. We are the ones that are called. And it is through this faithfulness of witnessing, martyr, witnessing to Christ, that the church grows. Tertullian captures this reality in his famous and often quoted statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In John 13, verses 33 and 36, Jesus told his disciples plainly that he was going away. He also announced that his hour had come and that he would be crucified. Then after his resurrection, he would turn to the Father and they would see him no more. He was going to a place that cannot go with him until he comes again in the end of the age. So much in the upper room. There he is preparing them for the realities that are unfolding, even as they are speaking. As they are in the upper room, Judas is out there leading a band with a determination to find Christ and to turn him over all in exchange for his wages. But Jesus is teaching them, as we've heard, in order to be faithful and endure, they must abide in him, even as a branch abides in the vine. In the verses this morning, we hear Jesus call them to be witnesses. But this is not something that they will have to undertake on their own. Even as he calls them to be witnesses, he promises the helper. We've heard him mentioned. We've heard a little bit about him earlier. Indeed, as we move on into the 16th chapter, we're going to hear more about the Holy Spirit. It's going to be rich as it unfolds that. Jesus teaches the disciples these things and to forewarn them so that in the face of suffering, even suffering unto death, that they should not stumble and fall away, as he says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 16. So our theme then is the Father sent the Holy Spirit to all who believe so that they can be witnesses to a dying world in every age for the glory of God. Being a witness for Jesus is costly. We have been sent by the Father to declare Christ and Him crucified. A message the world does not want to hear. And it may be costly. It may cost us even our lives. It is notable when reading the book of Acts that the apostles see what we're hearing about here. What Jesus is putting before them. This potential for persecution. The likelihood, even the certainty of it. He puts it before them. We see it unfold in the Acts of the Apostles written by Luke as the Holy Spirit moved him along. The disciples were martyrs for Christ. That is, they 
were witnesses. And indeed, then, according to our understanding of the word, they were martyred for Christ. They bore witness throughout the world. And the church exploded with growth and an expansion so much that Tortullian, the same Tortullian in his day, when there was much persecution as it went on into the third century, Tertullian wrote to one of his Roman antagonists, listen to this man of God in the light of the persecution, what he says to this Roman antagonist. Children, antagonist means somebody that's against you. They're oppressing you. They're opposed to you. And this is what Tertullian writes, quote, we are but of yesterday. And what he's saying is we've just come on the scene, as it were. We are but of yesterday and we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have nothing left to you but the temples of your gods. Is that not a bold testimony? That the gospel has gone out and it's been spread and God has blessed us so that even into the senate and into the palace of of Caesar, the gospel has gone. We, We hear that from Paul. He writes to that, that there are those in the household of Caesar who believe. You hear this man who is confident in God and in his gospel. He says, what do you have left to you? You just have your temples of your gods. And they're empty. This is one of the things that infuriated and inflamed the Romans, that people were turning away from worshiping their gods. We hear something of that in the book of Acts when they wanted to destroy Paul as they had their wild riot about uh, the the, uh, the artisans who made the the, temple, uh, the, the idols of uh, Artemis, the Ephesians, Diana, they were enraged because their business was falling off. What a glorious truth. Oh, that it was so in our day that uh, we would go forth with the gospel so that cities, islands, and fortresses, towns, and so forth would be populated with God's people. This morning we were going to consider the witness of the Holy Spirit, uh, the witness of the apostles, and how then they suffered for that witness, and indeed our own witness, our own apostolic witness. We begin then with a witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Holy Spirit. We see here that the Word of God in many places, here we see the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He's very honest about the cost of discipleship. Right here in the upper room, Jesus is preparing these men to be his instruments for building the church. And we know that Jesus builds the church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But Jesus builds the church through means. God works in the world through means. He uses men and women, boys and girls, who are faithful to accomplish his purposes. Here Jesus is preparing these instruments, and he's preparing them, we could say, with a brutal honesty. He doesn't sugarcoat it. Uh, this, this is not a, a walk in pleasant places. Jesus says persecution. He's told them earlier in chapter 15 that the world will hate you because it hates me. Jesus has made it plain he's going away. He's going to be arrested by the chief priests and the elders of the people. Yeah, he's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And then he says, and then they're going to hate you and persecute you because you follow me. Yes, there are reasons to forsake all and follow Jesus, right? To forsake all and follow Jesus. Aren't there not compelling reasons? 
He's the Lord of life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He brings us to the Father. He provides forgiveness for our sins. He cleanses us of our guilt and the stain of sin. He gives us new hearts. He fills us with the Spirit to equip us to live for His glory. He gives us a promise of no wrath and judgment in hell and the promise of spending our eternity in heaven with Him. These are wonderful things. You say, well, who wouldn't want that? Indeed, it's very desirable. It's delightful to be in Christ. But He's also honest that because we follow Him, the world will hate us. Because they hate Jesus. They have and they still do. So Jesus moves on to equip the disciples for what they will face. He says they're going to get a helper. This is in verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The helper, then we see, is one who is sent He's sent by Christ. He's sent from the Father. He proceeds from the Father. He comes to them from the Father and the Son. And Jesus said he is the spirit of truth. This teaching, with his teaching, Jesus is expanding what the Word of God teaches about the Trinity. Because he's teaching so much more about the Holy Spirit than has been revealed about the Spirit before. Clear references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament Uh, We understand those, or we might see those with greater light because we have what is now revealed in the New Testament. But he was revealed in the Old Testament. It was clear that God was a a plurality of persons, so not with the clarity that we find in the New Testament, that he's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, three persons. And here Jesus is opening up the understanding that the church has about the Holy Spirit. Here we find a great revelation First, Jesus says that he is a helper. We studied this somewhat in John 14. Uh, The spirit um, is that paraclete, that one who comes alongside of us, who comes to our side. And he comes to us on behalf of Jesus to strengthen us, to comfort us, to bear witness to us, uh, to resist us when we are tempted to sin, to strengthen us not to give way to temptations to sin. The Holy Spirit is a helper of remarkable portions. He gives us power to do what we're called to do. The language that's used here, the helper, also speaks of him being a legal advocate. You remember, uh, well, a legal advocate. When the world is against us, condemning us, convicting us for following Christ, the Holy Spirit is there to help us. He testifies as an advocate on behalf of Christ, bearing witness to our spirit that indeed what we are being persecuted for is the truth. He bears witness to us. He's a legal advocate that what we believe, what we have held to is true and faithful and we need not shrink back. Indeed, this is true for the church as well as for us as individuals. He also validates our witness. When we go as witnesses, as we have been sent by Jesus to be, our witness is validated. You know, if it's entirely dependent upon us, uh, we would go to, we'd need to go to school and become scholars, right? To, to learn how to answer all the arguments and engage with all the, the opposition questions. And indeed, there are those who do that. And uh, we appreciate the great apologists. But it's not necessary for every one of us because we can go and bear witness 
be a martyr, to bear witness of what God has done for us, the truth that we've come under to understand, that we can testify to the truth of the Scripture, and the Holy Spirit bears witness even to that truth, to those to whom we speak. Secondly, Jesus says that the Helper is a spirit of truth. It is the Spirit who bears witness in the hearts of sinners that the Gospel is true. He testifies in a powerful and effectual way so that sinners are given understanding and come when called by Christ to salvation. When Christ is preached and the call of the gospel goes out, the witnesses bearing the Holy Spirit is there to testify as the spirit of truth so that those who hear would understand. We'll have more about that in a moment. Thirdly, what Jesus says explains the relationship of the Spirit to the Father and the Son with respect to the work of salvation. You've heard me use the language, the economic relationship within the Spirit. So we understand the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal in all their respects. One's not subservient to the other. But when it comes to the work of salvation, we hear Jesus saying, I only do what the Father is doing. He's, you hear this uh, uh, testifying that he is submissive and he's yielded to the Father, and that is in regards to the work of salvation. And here, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we are told that he proceeds from the Father. This, too, is a part of the economic relationship that that Jesus asks of the Father to send the Spirit, and the Father sends him, and he proceeds from him. Now, I don't want to get into a very complicated matter, but indeed, you will know that we testify in our creed, the Nicene Creed, of this very same language, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that's a matter of the ontological relationship. It's a matter of being is what that word deals with, of their essence and who they are. And the church grappled with this relationship with the in the persons of the Trinity on into the 3rd and 4th century. And it wasn't really until um, Nicaea and Chalcedon that there was an established understanding of the Spirit. This passage, you can argue that it supports it, but Jesus is not speaking about the ontological relationship of the Spirit to the Father and the Son, but about their economic, the way that he works with us. Indeed, that's a matter maybe we'll talk about in a sermon discussion, but um, there, there's a lot, well, I'll call it the weeds, it's, although not to be in a negative sense, there's a lot to go through and we'll not take that up. But what we need to understand here, Jesus is saying the spirit whom we need, the spirit who comes as an advocate, the spirit who comes alongside us, the spirit who comes to help us, he has asked the Father to send him and the spirit proceeds to us and even into us to help us. What's important then for us to understand is this reality. When Jesus asks of the Father, the Father grants that which he asks because Jesus asks always and consistently and in accordance with the will of the Father. And so what Jesus is then teaching is that in the face of the opposition and the persecution from the world, the disciples, they're not going to be alone. They won't be alone. There's times when we feel alone. We might like wish we had a whole host of angels or you know, armies of men, you know, mighty weapons. But we've been given something far greater, someone far greater. We've been given the Holy Spirit as our helper. He who hovered over the face of the deep in the creation and created order out of chaos. He who was there when the, the Father spoke the word, that is the Son, and what was spoken came about. The Holy Spirit, the clear demonstration of God's power. 
It is he who raised Jesus from the dead. This spirit is with us. We are not forsaken. We are not alone. And when we face persecution, the spirit is with us. Although Jesus, in his humanity, in his human body, united to his deity, will be seated at the right hand of the Father, yet the spirit of Christ will be sent so that we can steadfast, stand fast, and bear witness to the truth. And even when pressed, For our testimony, he will strengthen and uphold us. John Calvin explains, quoting, Christ now, in opposition to the wicked fury of these men in the world, produces the testimony of the Spirit. And if their consciences rest on his testimony, they will never be shaken. The Lord's given us the Spirit. So that we be confident, that we can be bold, and that even if sorely pressed, even unto death, the Spirit is with us. We can rest in our consciences, and we will not be shaken, even unto death. This witness of the Holy Spirit, then, will be objective as well as subjective. I said we'd come to this more in a moment. The Holy Spirit is an objective witness through the inspired writings of the apostles. Remember Peter's testimony in 2 Peter 1, uh, verse 21, he says, Holy men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's true for the prophets of old, but it was true for the apostles. Even as Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. He said, I will, by the Spirit, he will call to remembrance everything that I've spoken to you. And the Holy Spirit moved them along to write the Holy Scriptures. That's the objective witness of the Spirit is then born through the apostles. The things that they saw, the Holy Spirit inspired them to write through with accuracy and clarity and in comprehensiveness, indeed, all that we need to know. We have God's full revelation by the Holy Spirit through holy men in the Holy Scriptures. So we already touched about this objective witness of the Spirit. This is that internal working. I'm borrowing from the language of the Catechism concerning the effectual calling. That internal working of the Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills. He, that is the Spirit, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the Gospel. That's that internal working. That's that subjective witness. We can see the, the inspired Scriptures. We can read the inspired Scriptures. We have this clear objective witness of the Holy Spirit. But we also have that internal subjective work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who works in us to call us into Christ. And the general call of the gospel that goes out when the word is preached becomes specific and effective or effectual in the life of a sinner when we are drawn by the working of the Spirit to Christ. My friends, this is the confidence of every faithful gospel minister that the Holy Spirit is present to bless the preaching of the word. That it does not return unto God void. That indeed those who are appointed for salvation, that they hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit works in them. That they would see their sin. They would see their need. They would be appalled and abhor their sin. That they would see the beauty and excellency of Christ as the Spirit makes them known to them and indeed draws them and brings them to the Father through the Son. This was Paul's confidence in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power, Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Isn't that a wonderful testimony? You know, if you believe because you heard you had a great preacher, you know, someday in your past, you know, that he was so eloquent and you say, Yeah, I'm gonna follow Christ because it's just so wonderful hearing him talk and my friends, you're in a pitiful shape. But if indeed you believe because the Spirit of God has worked in you, what a powerful testimony. That's what God has done. God has wrought it within you. It's in a demonstration of the Spirit and the power. Not the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Even the power and the person and the working of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who bears witness with our spirits that the Bible is the very Word of God. How do we know this is the Word of God? It's self-authenticating. The Spirit who inspired it works in us that when we read it, we recognize this is the Word of God. It's not something that I can persuade you of or someone else can. It's, we don't take this to be the Word of God because the church says it's the Word of God. The Word of God declares it's the Word of God and the Holy Spirit bears witness that it's the Word of God in our spirits. Perhaps there was a time you can remember that you, know, you were wrestling with these things with the Gospel and you're reading the Scripture and there was just this recognition and movement and a working of the Spirit. It's like, this book is unlike no other. I hear the testimony of God. I hear the Spirit of God. I hear the voice of Jesus. These words are not the words of men. This is the very Word of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so it is that Jesus promises that He will send the Spirit of truth, that He will testify of me. In these ways, the Spirit, and the word actually testify, it's martyr. It's the Greek word martyr. The, the Spirit is a martyr. He is a witness of these things, even as Jesus promised that would be so for them. But then Jesus calls them, verse 27, And you also will bear witness of me, for you have been with me from the beginning. You will be my witness. And so we have the witness of the disciples. The Spirit is coming to be a witness, but His witness is tied to theirs. The Spirit's witness does not, this is remarkable, the Spirit's witness does not replace the witness of the disciples. Their witness is essential. They've been with Jesus from the beginning. They are men called out by God to bear witness. And the Spirit then bears witness with their testimony so that it becomes authentic and it becomes uh, understood and effectual in the life of people. Now, this passage, verse 27, I'm going to give it to you in a, in a more literal reading because it's, it's more powerful. Jesus says, you all must testify. It's not a, a suggestion. It's not an encouragement. No, Jesus says, you must you must also testify. It's in the imperative. It's a command. Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. Who else has been with him from the beginning? These men have been with him from the beginning. And they were appointed by Jesus to follow him. He called them out to follow him. They were appointed to be his disciples and particularly his apostles. And for three years now, they have been with him. And now he's saying, you are to be my martyrs. And to go forth and bear witness to me to a dying world. They're to tell of what they heard and of what they saw. These men were eyewitnesses. And indeed, most of these men then would become martyred, as we understand the word in English, because they were martyrs, witnesses for Christ. These men did not die because of hearsay. In the life of the church, there have been times of great persecution, and there were those who were kind of on for the ride. They were going along because they 
enjoyed the culture and the fellowship and the people in the church. But when oppression breaks out, persecution for Christ's sake, there are those who fall away. Because they're not martyrs. They're not witnesses to the power of God and salvation. They have not experienced that working of the Holy Spirit, and, and they shrink back. Well, the apostles did not. They, many of them were persecuted and, and to the point of death because they knew the truth. Listen to what John, this same John says in his epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. John says, I'm a martyr. I'm an eyewitness. I testify. I bear witness to that which I saw and heard. But it's not just him. He speaks in the plural, we. Peter has the same declaration in Second Peter 1, 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. See, Peter, John, and the others, it wasn't just based on hearsay. They have experienced... Now, we hear the Gospel through others, uh, through the preaching of the Word, more so ordinarily. But it's not hearsay when the Holy Spirit wears witness based on the witness of the faithful preaching the Word, the Spirit bearing witness in our spirit, it becomes something that we experience. It is something we can testify to, not after the manner of the, of the disciples who were with Him, but indeed as ones who have been called at a later time who are with Him and He who is with us, that we too are to be martyrs, testifying to the great things that God has done for us, the witness of what the Spirit has accomplished in us. Paul also bore witness of these things. Even as Jesus had promised, he says, you're going to testify before the nations. He testified before the Jewish nation. He testified before kings. And what did he testify of? Was it hearsay? No, he had an encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. An extraordinary conversion. One breathing out threats and the Lord brought him low and blinded him. And that was his testimony. And in that... The Spirit shares a similar status with the disciples. Don't misunderstand me here, but we remember the Holy Spirit has been there from the beginning. The Spirit can bear witness because He has been, and as God is unfolding, you see, he's, the Spirit knows all things and He testifies with the truth, but He was there present when the angel told Mary, the virgin, that she would have a child. He was there. He moved in power over her that she did conceive, a virgin conceive. And indeed, it's the Son of God, as was told to her, that she should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from his sin. The Holy Spirit was there when John the Baptist anointed Jesus, the Messiah, as the Christ. And then he was there coming down, bearing witness from the Father to those that beheld him. And indeed, the Spirit came upon Jesus, filling him without measure. What we mean by that, children, is Jesus could not have had any more of the Holy Spirit. He was full and overflowing with the Spirit. We could go on and on. The Spirit was a witness to all these things. And He, with His disciples, then bore witness. They were to go and to bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning I want to think, point out four 
points based on this. I'm following Rick Phillips here. One, then, a true true Christian witness is always about Jesus Christ. A true Christian witness is always about Jesus Christ. Not something else. Not even some point of doctrine. We bear witness to Christ and what he has done. The Spirit, he said, will testify of me. And we are called to testify of Christ. Our witness must be about Jesus, and it must be a witness that is faithful to the truth revealed in the Word of God. And so once again, as we've heard many times in an application, we need to be students of the Word. Under the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word, the study of the Word, we are to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Christ and Him crucified, the only hope of glory. The world does not need another message. The world does not need to hear from us. It needs to hear of Christ through our mouths as the Spirit would enable us. Secondly, and this is for sinners, Jesus made a full provision so that the world that hated him and rejected him and crucified him could hear the gospel of peace. Think about that. Jesus is moments away. He's a matter of hours away from being crucified. And yet he's making a provision through the apostles and through the Holy Spirit that this world that hates him, this world that persecutes him, would hear the good news of the gospel. That there would be those who would come and bear witness of who he is and what he's accomplished. What mercy. What a tremendous display of mercy. As we heard him cry out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that was Stephen's own prayer as he was being stoned for the sake of Christ. What do we learn from that? Christian, we need to learn that our gospel witness must always bear the mark of mercy. We should be merciful to those who engage with. It may be somebody who is persecuting us. We don't retaliate. We want to be merciful with those who are perishing. That our testimony of the scripture, of the gospel, would reflect Christ's own mercy. Thirdly, let us see the importance of the apostolic witness, the apostolic witness from the beginning in the building of the church. What they did was essential, and hear me here, in an unrepeatable event. The apostles, what they were doing was essential, and it was unrepeatable in the role of the church that the church has benefited from now 2,000 years. Remember in the image that John sees of the, the New Jerusalem coming down, the foundation stones of the church are the apostles. He saw written on those 12 stones the names of the apostles. They were used by Christ. Christ says, I will build my church. He is the chief stone. He is the cornerstone. But the apostles, as it were, are laid alongside him. They were his chosen instruments. They were unique. As he said, they've been from me. You bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. When they went to replace Judas, remember how essential it is. We need someone who has been with us from the beginning, who's been a witness to the things that we have been a witness to, and they're a witness to the resurrected Christ. To that end, then, the Spirit was given to them in a measure and for a purpose that would not be repeated in the history of the church. The apostles were unique. This tells us that those who come along being apostle, to, claiming to be apostles now are in error. There were 12. We could debate about what, who the 12th was. 
Was it Matthias? Was it Paul? But there were 12. And they were remarkable. They were unique. And indeed, the spirit that was given to them enabled them, according to Christ's appointment, to do remarkable things that are not repeatable as well. Mighty miracles. There are those today who claim to do signs and wonders like the apostles. They are false apostles and false prophets and charlatans. Some of you have had your own experiences and encounters with those things. And you can look back and go, praise God, he opened my eyes to deliver me. Fourthly, as we have just heard, there was something unique about these apostles and their work. It was the same Holy Spirit that is with them, was with them, is with us today. Though their work was unique to something that endures, they were called to be witnesses of what God had done for them. And so it is in the church, down through the many centuries, even now two millennium, that we who are called by Christ and have received the working of God, the Holy Spirit in us, we too are then called to bear witness to what God has done for us, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we experienced. We too bear witness, and the Spirit is with us, so that our witness will be bold, and it is a witness to the truth of God's Word. The Holy Spirit is still and will always be a helper to all the saints. We hear of these men and these promises that were made to them, and perhaps we're like, we look awesome. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's wonderful. No, these promises are for us. The Holy Spirit is with us. He enables us to bear witness that we are the children of, the God, of God and that we have a hope in Him that is not in vain. He's here to help us when we bear witness to others of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would bless us in the, in the proclaiming. And we, were, we stutter and we stammer and we're halting and, and we go away from those situations. We feel like we were so inadequate, even as a preacher steps down from the pulpit and thinks, oh, that was so pathetic. And yet the Holy Spirit is there bearing witness that all the truth that was proclaimed in our one-on-one evangelism and in the preaching of God's word, is true. It's a true word, and he makes it effectual, and he brings sinners to Christ. The third thing we want to consider is suffering for being witnesses. Jesus made that clear in the previous chapter. The world will hate you. He's even more explicit now. These things I have spoken to you so that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out. Notice the certainty. It's not that it might happen. They will put you out of the synagogue. There's an interesting Greek word here. It's got the Greek word synagogue, which in Greek sounds a lot like synagogue. Synagogue, but it's, it's a complex word, and it's, it's uh, to be put out, to be cast out, put out of the synagogue, the, the congregation. We have a word, excommunication. This word is it's like um, down in the mountains of uh, Nashville. I was reading... Uh, church records when we were visiting one of Donna's aunts some years ago. And they had an interesting phrase. When someone was put out of the church, they said they were churched. The church exercised its discipline and the church put them out. And the same idea. The, the, the synagogue, they were expelled. The, the, the leaders of the synagogue expelled them from the synagogue. They were synagogued, but with an additional word as put out, cut off. Jesus is honest, but he goes on to say, Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. 
Jesus is preparing them for the encounters that they most assuredly will have. That they will be persecuted and they will suffer for the sake of Christ. But he tells them this, he says in verse 1, that he tells them in advance so that they should not be made to stumble. That's a pretty good, accurate translation. There's some of the other ones that kind of soften what the word is. The the word that Jesus uses in the Greek, we, we get our word scandalized from. He said that you would not be scandalized. And the word means to be offended. Imagine that if he hadn't been forewarned and the first time they're persecuted, they're like, huh, what? This isn't supposed to happen. I'm following Jesus. It was supposed to be an easy ride. No, Jesus said, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to stumble, to be scandalized. They're being forewarned so they will not be caught unaware. It is true that there are those who fell away in the times of persecution. When they discovered that being hated for sharing the good news, they were offended at the gospel and walked away from it. Find accounts of that even in the scriptures and certainly in church history. But Jesus names two specific persecutions here. You'd be excommunicated, and that's a word familiar to us. We use that, putting out of the synagogue, and killed. Now, Jesus isn't saying this is the only two things. These two words encompass a range of the things that the world will do to those who follow Christ. And these two things, no doubt, death, opposition, being put out of the church, could instill fear within us, right? Especially, you know, uh, we should tremble at the idea of being excommunicated. And indeed, there's legitimate reasons why someone should be excommunicated. As we explain to each of you as you join the church, if you're not following the manner of Christ, you're, that you're not living a credible testimony, you say, I'm a Christian, but your life doesn't reflect it, we're going to address that. And if you continue and persist in it, then you'll be excommunicated. Which is not to say we don't believe you're converted. We can't pass that sort of judgment. But what we're saying is your life is not consistent with your testimony. But there's an excommunication that is fearful. In verse 2, we're told they will put you out of the synagogue just there's a time coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. We've seen that in John's Gospel. Remember the man born blind? He was cut off from the synagogue, excommunicated. Why? Because he bore witness to Christ. They pressed him, and they wanted to know who he thought he was. He said, I don't know, but you know, since the beginning of the time, no one who's been born blind has ever been healed. You want to say, he says, I don't think such a man is a sinner. And of course, they wanted him to condemn Christ as a sinner, and they put him out. In the first century, excommunication, in this setting, uh, to be a Jew in a synagogue, in the culture, it carried very weighty consequences. In that time, to be put out of the synagogue meant being ostracized, cut off from all spiritual life, all economic life, and indeed, all social life. It wasn't just you no longer remember the synagogue. You were treated as though you did not exist. You could not get employment. No job, no friends, shunned by your family, no access to the temple. This is similar to what Muslim background believers experience today. Those in Muslim cultures who are converted and follow Christ. They're cut off from everything. If not, even put to death. And so it was for the man born blind. These 11 men and others would join them. 
They were persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders and the king. James, John's own brother, one of the other sons of thunder, was put to death by King Herod. And he seized Peter because the people were pleased with it. And they were just going to put him to death. But we know that the Holy Spirit, or the angel came, God sent us an angel and delivered Peter out of their hands. Stephen was stoned. Paul was beaten at the hands of the Jews multiple times. He was stoned in Lystra. One moment they were ready to worship him as a god, and next, because of the willfulness of the people, they stoned him and left him for dead. The same former persecutions and martyrdoms have come down upon the visible church throughout history, the times of the Reformation. But before that, the, the, the Inquisition. It was a church that was engaged in the Inquisition. They were brutally dealing with men who dared to differ from them, those who sought to walk by the Scriptures and live for the glory of God. And many others were caught up in that. But in the time of the Reformation, prior to it, during the years of it and following, there were many who were excommunicated for embracing the Bible's teaching on salvation, justifications by faith alone, and for holding to the sacrament as given in the Scriptures that this is a spiritual representation of Christ. It doesn't become His body. It doesn't become His blood. Think of John Huss, executed by the church for preaching the truth about salvation, burned at the stake. Luther was put on trial. He had a papal bull. They wanted to destroy him as well, but God provided him a protector. One of the charges brought against Luther was, this is a quote, he, he says, they said, and you speak too much of Christ. You speak too much of Christ. Oh, my friends, let that be a badge that we would bear. Indeed, let it be true of us. Jesus makes it clear that those who oppose the true followers of Christ are self-deceived and they go so far as thinking that they're serving God. Remember the Apostle Paul, before he was converted, he was known as Saul. That's exactly what he thought. As he was going about arresting people, putting them in chains, bringing them to Jerusalem, breathing out threats against the church, everywhere he went, he thought that he was serving God. He thought he was being a faithful Pharisee, a Jew of the Jews, at the pinnacle of his religious profession. He even bare witness before one of the kings in Acts 26 as he gave his testimony. He says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. And so it was on the road to Damascus when Jesus encountered him. He told him that what he was doing, he was actually persecuting me. He says, Paul, why do you persecute me? Isn't that encouraging? If we're suffering for Christ's sake, Christ suffers with us. He is persecuted because we suffer as His people and for Him's sake. There were dark days, many dark days in England when Queen Mary, the Bloody Mary as she was known, was determined to destroy the true gospel. Any of those who would dare to preach the truth, they not only were put out of the church, they too were burned at the stake. Gladner and Ridmer, Ridley and Cranmer and many, many others, multitudes of whose names were not recorded. The opposition was great. And many died, some by hanging, some at the stake. Some were drowned. Some of the greatest persecutions in history have been done by the organized, visible church steeped in air. Thus, Jesus said, they think they offer service to God. Being a witness.
is costly. But Jesus says, if you will testify of me before men, I will testify of you before my Father. And so we conclude with this, our witness today. We are the Catholic Church, that is to say the universal church. As we confess, we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And we are built on the apostles' testimony, as we have heard earlier. We still hold to their doctrine and proclaim the same message as them. As the church, we are devoted to the apostles' teachings. We are even in the midst of preaching through the gospel according to the apostle John. We hold to the apostles' teaching. Their heritage is our heritage. Their message is our message. Their gospel is the same gospel that we believe and live by today. It is the power of God unto salvation in every generation to all who believe. Now, there are those who would have us to alter and soften the hard edges of the gospel. Don't talk about sin. Leave out punishment. We don't want to hear about hell. Don't tell us about the biblical ethics, about sexuality, about males and females. Be quiet about those things. Compromise. And then we'll, then we'll listen to you. But as we've seen, they don't want us to just be quiet. They want us to celebrate their sin. And so we must stand firm. Indeed, if we compromise, we become irrelevant. What place is there for a church that has lost the gospel? It's like worthless salt to be cast out and trampled underfoot. Some churches in our day have compromised, and they are like worthless salt. They're irrelevant. Their message sounds like the world's message because that's what they've embraced. But we are called to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the only hope of glory. Jesus did not come into the world to die to save sinners so that that could be replaced with a message of good works or good intentions or whatever else men would intend. We are to preach Christ and Him crucified. And the world hates this message that begins by declaring the bad news of the gospel. You are a sinner under the wrath of God. It abides upon you already, as John 3.19. They're condemned already. Why? Because they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. We must begin with the bad news. They're sinners. But then, against that dark backdrop, backdrop stands the glory and the beauty of the gospel. That Christ has come into the world. He, the light of the world, has come to save. He, the God of mercy, came to lay down His life that He might redeem those who were dead, that they might have life. So let us not soften our message. Let us proclaim the good news of the gospel. The church always grows in times of suffering and persecution. Twenty years ago, the church in Iran, as best could be estimated, it was difficult to do so, was maybe 10,000 in that country. But the persecution against those 10,000, though the intention was to snuff it out, destroy it, put an end to it, what has happened? The church now in Iran is about a million. Blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Indeed, in in the heritage that we have from the apostles, we too can bear witness. We begin with a quote from Tertullian, who wrote to the opposition in his day, We are but of yesterday. 
And we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. Is this the case in our community today, in our state? Is the church in every corner, in every crevice of society? Has the gospel gone forth in a pervasive and and like yeast in the loaf? Do we see the world turn right side up as it was in the first century? No. Not at least here. Not in our land. Why is that? Well, there are many reasons. God is sovereign in all things. It is Christ who builds the church. He appoints those for salvation. That even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. But we the people who profess to follow Jesus, have we been faithful martyrs? Do we testify of the great things that God has done for us? Are we bold in our witness? Are we confident that because we've been given the Holy Spirit that we can bear witness to those that are perishing? They're all around us. We know them. We, we talk about them. We pray for them. But then we need to get up and go. Jesus said, as you are going, make disciples. Teaching them. We need to open our mouths and tell them the gospel. Tell them the good news of what Jesus has done for them. I'm challenged by this word. I'm convicted to repent of an indifference, a laziness, a carelessness. Perhaps you are too. We have a tremendous heritage as the church. Many saints who right now are around and under the throne, martyrs for Christ. And they cry out to him. John reveals us in Revelation. What is their word? How long, O Lord, before you vindicate our blood? Oh, that we would be faithful. That even if we suffer unto death, that we would live and suffer for the sake of Christ and his gospel, his good news. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, our God, forgive us for our carelessness, our callousness. Lord, forgive us for being caught up in things that matter but are not of the chief importance. Lord, help us to be bold this week and in the weeks to come that we would be martyrs for Christ, testifying to what you have done for us, testifying to this glorious gospel that has been entrusted to the church beginning with the apostles handed down, that we would take up that which they have recorded by the Holy Spirit, that we would bear witness to the truthfulness of it even as we have experienced ourselves. Lord, we pray for those martyrs in the world today who are sorely oppressed because of Jesus. Lord, uphold them and strengthen them that they would not become discouraged or fall away. May the Holy Spirit whom you've given to them be in them and at their side to strengthen them that they would not waver. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.